Chapter 10, Part 1 of How to Write Short Stories with Examples by Ring Lardner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Chapter 10, Horseshoes, Part 1. This is the kind of story which the reader can take up at any point and lay down as soon as he feels like it. A trail of vengeance, ruthless and sinister, is uncovered to its hidden source by a flat-footed detective. The series ended Tuesday, but I had stayed in Philadelphia an extra day on the chance of there being some follow-up stuff worth sending. Nothing had broken loose, so I filed some stuff about what the athletics and giants were going to do with their dough, and then caught the 8 o'clock train for Chicago. Having passed up supper in order to get my story away and grab the train, I went to the buffet car right after I'd planted my grips. I sat down at one of the tables and ordered a sandwich. Four salesmen were playing rum at the other table and all the chairs in the car were occupied. So it didn't surprise me when somebody flopped down in the seat opposite me. I looked up from my paper and with a little thrill recognized my companion. Now, I've been experting around the country with ball players so much that it doesn't usually excite me to meet one face to face, even if he's a star. I can talk with Tyrus without getting all fussed up. But this particular player had jumped from obscurity to fame so suddenly and had played such an important though brief part in the recent argument between the Max and the McGraws that I couldn't help being a little awed by his proximity. It was none other than Grimes, the utility outfielder Connie had been forced to use in the last game because of the injury to Joyce. Grimes, whose miraculous catch in the 11th inning had robbed Parker of a home run and the Giants of victory, and whose own homer, a fluky one, had given the Athletics another world's championship. I had met Grimes one day during the spring he was with the Cubs, but I knew he wouldn't remember me. A ball player never recalls a reporter's face on less than six introductions or his name on less than 20. However, I resolved to speak to him and had just mustered sufficient courage to open a conversation when he saved me the trouble. Whose picture have they got there? he asked, pointing to my paper. Speed Parker's, I replied. What do they say about him? asked Grimes. I'll read it to you, I said. Speed Parker, McGraw's great third baseman, is ill in a local hospital with nervous prostration, the result of the strain of the World Series in which he played such a stellar role. Parker is in such a dangerous condition that no one is allowed to see him. Members of the New York team and fans from Gotham called at the hospital today, but were unable to gain admittance to his ward. Philadelphians hope he will recover speedily and will suffer no permanent ill effects from his sickness, for he won their admiration by his work in the series, though he was on a rival team. 
A lucky catch by Grimes, the athletic substitute outfielder was all that prevented Parker from winning the title for New York. According to manager Mack of the champions, the series would have been over in four games, but for Parker's wonderful exhibition of nerve and, that'll be a plenty, Grimes interrupted, and that's just what you might expect from one of them dough-headed reporters. If all the baseball writers was where they belong, they'd have to build an annex to Matiwan. I kept my temper with very little effort. It takes more than a peevish ball player's remarks to insult one of our fraternity. But I didn't exactly understand his peeve. Doesn't Parker deserve the bouquet, I asked. Oh, they can boost him all they want to, said Grimes, but when they call that catch lucky, and don't mention the fact that Parker is the luckiest guy in the world, something must be wrong with him. Did you see the serious? No. I lied glibly, hoping to draw from him the cause of his grouch. Well, he said, you sure missed something. They never was a serious like it before, and they won't never be one again. It went the full seven games, and every game was a bear. They was one big in and every day, and Parker was the big cheese in it. Just as Connie says, the athletics would have cleaned them in four games but for Parker. But it wasn't because he's a great ball player, it was because he was born with a knife, fork, and spoon in his mouth, and a rabbit's foot hung round his neck. You may not know it, but I'm Grimes, the guy that made the lucky catch. I'm the guy that won the series with a hit, a home run hit, and I'm here to tell you that if I'd had one-tenth of Parker's luck, they'd have heard about me long before yesterday. They say my homer was lucky. Maybe it was. But believe me, it was time things broke for me. They've been breaking for him all his life. Well, I said his luck must have gone back on him if he's in a hospital with nervous prostration. Nervous prostration? Nothing, said Grimes. He's in a hospital because his face is all out of shape and he's ashamed to appear on the street. I don't usually do so much talking. And I'm raving a little tonight because I've had a couple of drinks. But have another said I, ringing for the waiter, and talk some more. I made two hits yesterday, Grimes went on, but the crowd only seen one. I busted up the game and the serious with the one they seen. The one they didn't see was the one I busted up a guy's map with, and Speed Parker was the guy. That's why he's in a hospital. He may be able to play ball next year, but I'll bet my share of the dough that McGraw won't recognize him when he shows up at Marlin in the spring. When did this come off, I asked, and why? It come off outside the clubhouse after yesterday's battle, he said, and I hit him because he called me a name, a name I won't stand from him. What did he call you, I queried, expecting to hear one of the delicate epithets usually applied by conquer to conqueror on the diamond. Horseshoes, was Grimes' amazing reply. But, good Lord, I remonstrated, I've heard of ballplayers calling each other that and Lucky Stiff and Four-Leaf Clover ever since I was a foot high, and I never knew them to start fights about it. Well, said Grimes, I might as well give you all the dope, and then if you don't think I was justified, I'll pay your fare from here to wherever you're going. 
I don't want you to think I'm kicking about trifles, or that I'm kicking at all, for that matter. I just want to prove to you that he didn't have no license to pull that horseshoe stuff on me, and that I only give him what was coming to him. Go ahead and shoot, said I. Give us some more of the same, said Grimes to the passing waiter. And then he told me about it. Maybe you've heard that me and Speed Parker was raised in the same town. Ishpeming, Michigan. We was kids together, and though he done all the devilment, I got all the lickings. When we was about 12 years old, Speed throwed a rotten egg at the teacher, and I got expelled. That made me sick of schools, and I wouldn't never go to one again, though my old man beat me up and the truant officers threatened to have me hung. Well, while Speed was learning what was the principal products of New Hampshire and Texas, I was working around the freight house and driving a dray. We'd both been playing ball all our lives, and when the town organized a semi-pro club, we got jobs with it. We was to draw two bucks apiece for each game, and they played every Sunday. We played four games before we got our first pay. They was a hole in my pants pocket as big as the home plate, but I forgot about it and put the dough in there. It wasn't there when I got home. Speed didn't have no hole in his pocket. You can bet on that. Afterward, the club hired a good outfielder, and I was canned. They was hunting for another third baseman, too. But, of course, they didn't find none, and Speed held his job. The next year, they started the Northern Peninsula League. We landed with the home team. The league opened in May and blowed up the third week in June. They paid off all the outsiders first and then had just money enough left to settle with one of us two Ishpeming guys. The night they'd done the paying, I was out to my uncle's farm. So they settled with speed and told me I'd have to wait for mine. I'm still waiting. Gene Higgins, who was manager of the Battle Creek Club, lived in Houghton. And that winter, we goes over and strikes him for a job. He'd give it to us, and we busted in together two years ago last spring. I had a good year down there. I hit over 300 and stole all the bases in sight. Speed got along good, too, and there was several big league scouts looking us over. The Chicago Cubs bought Speed outright, and four clubs put in a draft for me. Three of them, Cleveland and the New York Giants and the Boston Nationals, needed outfielders bad, and it would have been a pipe for me to make good with any of them. But who do you think got me? The same Chicago Cubs, and the only outfielders they had at that time was Schulte and Leach and Good and Williams and Stewart and one or two others. Well, I didn't figure I was any worse off than Speed. The Cubs had Zimmerman at third base, and it didn't look like there was any danger of a busher beating him out. But Zimmerman goes and breaks his leg the second day of the season. That's a year ago last April, and Speed jumps right in as a regular. Do you think anything like that could happen to Schulte or Leach or any of them outfielders? No, sir. I wore out my uniform sliding up and down the bench and wondering whether they'd ship me to Fort Worth or Siberia. Now I want to tell you about the miserable luck Speed had right off the reel. We was playing at St. Louis. They had a one-run lead in the eighth when their pitcher walked Speed with one out. 
Sire hits a high fly to center and Parker starts with the crack of the bat. Both coachers was yelling at him to go back, but he thought they was two out and he was clear round to third base when the ball come down. And Oakes muffs it. Of course he scored and the game was tied up. Parker come into the bench like he did something wonderful. Did you think they was two out, asked Hank. No, says Speed blushing. Then what did you run for, says Hank. I had a hunch he was going to drop the ball, says Speed. And Hank pretty near falls off the bench. The next day he come up with one out and the sacks full and the score tied in the sixth. He smashes one on the ground straight at Hauser and it looked like a cinch double play. But just as Hauser was going to grab it, the ball hit a rough spot and hopped a mile over his head. It got between Oaks and McGee and went clear to the fence. Three guys scored and Speed pulled up at third. The papers come out and said the game was won by a three-bagger from the Battle Parker, the Cubs' sensational kid third baseman. Gosh. We go home to Chai and are having a hot battle with Pittsburgh. This time Speed's turn come when they was two on and two out and Pittsburgh a run to the good. I think it was the eighth inning. Cooper gives him a fast one and he hits it straight up in the air. Of course the runners start going, but it looked hopeless because there wasn't no wind or high sky to bother anybody. Mowry and Gibson both goes after the ball, and just as Mowry was set for the catch, Gibson bumps into him and they both fall down. Two runs scored and Speed got to second. And what does he do but try to steal third? With two out, too! And Gibson's peg pretty near hits the left field seats on the fly. When Speed comes to the bench, Hank says, If I was you, I'd quit playing ball and go to Monte Carlo. What for? says Speed. You're so damn lucky, says Hank. So is Ty Cobb, says Speed. That's how he hated himself. First trip to Cincy, we run into a couple of old Ishpeming boys. They took us out one night, and about 12 o'clock I said we'd have to go back to the hotel or we'd get fined. Speed said I had cold feet and he stuck with the boys. I went back alone and Hank caught me coming in and put a $50 plaster on me. Speed stayed out all night long and Hank never knowed it. I says to myself, wait till he gets out there and tries to play ball with no sleep. But the game that day was called off on a counter rain. Can you beat it? I remember what he got away with the next afternoon, the same as though it happened yesterday. In the second inning, they walked him with nobody down and he took a big lead off first base like he always does. Benton throwed over there three or four times to scare him back, and the last time he throwed, Hobby hid the ball. The coacher seen it and told Speed to hold the bag, but he didn't pay no attention. He started leading right off again, and Hoppy tried to tag him, but the ball slipped out of his hand and rolled about a yard away. Parker had plenty of time to get back, but instead of that, he starts for second. Hobby picked up the ball and shot it down to grow and Grow made a square muff. Parker slides into the bag safe and then gets up and throws out his chest like he'd made the greatest play ever. When the ball's thrown back to Benton, Speed leads off about 30 foot and stands there in a trance. Clark signs for a pitch out and pegs down to second to nip him. He was caught flat-footed, 
that is, he would have been with a decent throw. But Clark's peg went pretty near to Latonia. Speed scored and strutted over to receive our hearty congratulations. Some of the boys was laughing, and he thought they was laughing with him instead of at him. It was in the ninth, though, that he got by with one of the worst I ever seen. The Reds was a run behind, and Marsons was on third base with two out. Hobby, I think it was, hit one on the ground right at speed, and he picked it up clean. The crowd all got up and started for the exits. Marsons run toward the plate in the faint hope that the peg to first would be wild. All of a sudden, the boys on the Cincy bench begun yelling at him to slide, and he'd done so. He was way past the plate when Speed's throw got to Archer. The bonehead had shot the ball home instead of to first base, thinking they was only one down. We was all crazy believing his nut play had let him tie it up, but he comes tearing in telling Archer to tag Marsons. So Jim walks over and tags the Cuban who was brushing off his uniform. You're out, says Clem. You never touched the plate. I guess Marsons knowed the umps was right because he didn't make much of a holler. But Speed sure got a panning in the clubhouse. I suppose you knowed he was going to miss the plate, says Hank, sarcastic as he could. Everybody on the club roasted him, but it didn't do no good. Well, you know what happened to me. I only got into one game with the Cubs, one afternoon when Leach was sick. We was playing the Boston Bunch, and Tyler was working against us. I always had trouble with left-handers, and this was one of his good days. I couldn't see what he throwed up there. I got one foul during the afternoon's entertainment, and the wind was blowing a hundred-mile gale so that the best outfielder in the world couldn't judge a fly ball. That Boston bunch must have hit 50 of them, and they all come to my field. If I caught any, I forgot about it. A couple of days after that, I got notice of my release to Indianapolis. Parker kept right on all season doing the blamedest things you ever heard of and getting by with them. One of the boys told me about it later. If they was playing a doubleheader in St. Louis with the thermometer at 130 degrees, he'd get put out by the umps in the first inning of the first game. If he started to steal the catcher, drop the pitch, or somebody muff the throw. If he hit a pop fly, the sun get in somebody's eyes. If he took a swell third strike with the bases full, the umps would call it a ball. If he cut first base by 20 feet, the umps would be reading the morning paper. Zimmerman's leg mended so that he was all right by June. And then Sayer got sick and they tried speed at first base. He'd never saw the bag before, but things kept on breaking for him and he played it like a house afire. The Cubs copped the pennant and speed got in on the big dough, besides playing a whale of a game through the whole series. Speed and me both went back to Ishpeming to spend the winter, though the Lord knows it ain't no winter resort. Our homes was there, and besides, in my case, there was a certain girl living in the old burg. Parker, of course, was the hero and the swell guy when we got home. He'd been in the world serious and had plenty of dough in his kick. I come home with nothing but my suitcase and a hard luck story, which I kept to myself. I hadn't even went good enough in Indianapolis to be sure of a job there again. That fall, last fall, and Uncle O'Speeds died over in the Sioux and left him 10,000 bucks. 
I had an uncle down in the lower peninsula who was worth five times that much, but he had good health. This girl I spoke about was the prettiest thing I ever see. I'd went with her in the old days, and when I blew back, I found she was still strong for me. They wasn't a great deal of variety in Ishpeming for a girl to pick from. Her and I went to the dance every Saturday night and to church Sunday nights. I called on her Wednesday evenings, besides taking her to all the shows that come along, rotten as the most of them was. I never knowed Speed was making a play for this doll till along last February. The minute I seen what was up, I got busy. I took her out sleigh riding and kept her out in the cold till she'd promised to marry me. We set the date for this fall. I figure I'd know better where I was at by that time. Well, we didn't make no secret o' being engaged. Down in the pool room one night, Speed come up and congratulated me. He says, You got a swell girl, Dick. I wouldn't mind being in your place. You're mighty lucky to cop her out, you old horseshoes, you. Horseshoes, I says. You got a fine license to call anybody horseshoes. I suppose you ain't never had no luck. Not like you, he says. I was feeling too good about grabbing the girl to get sore at the time. But when I got to thinking about it a few minutes afterward, it made me mad clear through. What right did that bird have to talk about me being lucky? Speed was playing freeze-out at a table near the door, and when I started home, some of the boys with him says, Good night, Dick. And I said, Good night, and then Speed looked up. Good night, horseshoes, he says. That got my nanny this time. Shut up, you lucky stiff, I says. If you wasn't so damn lucky, you'd be sweeping the streets. Then I walks on out. I was too busy with the girl to see much of speed after that. He left home about the middle of the month to go to Tampa with the Cubs. I got notice from Minneapolis that I was sold to Baltimore. I didn't care much about going there, and I wasn't anxious to leave home under the circumstances, so I didn't report till late. When I read in the papers along in April that Speed had been traded to Boston for a couple of pitchers, I thought, gee, he must have lost his rabbit's foot, because even if the Cubs didn't cop again, they'd have a city serious with the White Sox and get a bunch of dough that way. And there wasn't no chance in the world for the Boston club to get nothing but their salaries. It wasn't another month, though, till Schaefer of the Giants quit baseball and McGraw was up against it for a third baseman. Next thing I knowed, Speed was traded to New York and was with another winner, for they never was out of first place all season. I was getting along all right at Baltimore, and Donnie liked me, so I felt like I had something more than just a one-year job, something I could get married on. I was all framed that the wedding was coming off as soon as this season was over, so you can believe I was pulling for October to hurry up and come. One day in August, two months ago, Donnie come in the clubhouse and handed me the news. Rube Oldring's busted his leg, he says, and he's out for the rest of the season. Connie's got a youngster named Joyce that he can stick in there, but he's got to have an extra outfielder. He's made me a good proposition for you, and I'm going to let you go. It'll be pretty soft for you because they got the pennant cinched, and they'll cut you in on the big money. 
Yes, I says. And when they're through with me, they'll ship me to hell and gone, and I'll be dragging down about 75 bucks a month next year. Nothing like that, says Dunny. If he don't want you next season, he's got to ask for waivers. And if you get out of the big league, you come right back here. That's all framed. So that's how I come to get with the athletics. Connie, give me a nice, comfortable seat in one corner of the bench, and I had the pleasure of watching a real ball club perform once every afternoon and sometimes twice. Connie told me that as soon as they had the flag cinched, he was going to lay off some of his regulars and I'd get a chance to play. Well, they cinched it in the fourth day of September, and our next engagement was with Washington on Labor Day. We had two games, and I was in both of them. And I broke in with my usual lovely luck, because the pitchers I was asked to face was Bailing, a nasty left-hander, and this guy, Johnson. The morning game was Bailing's, and he wasn't no worse than some of the rest of his kind. I only whiffed once and would have had a triple if Milan hadn't run from here to New Orleans and stole one off of me. I'm not boasting about my first experience with Johnson, though. They can't never tell me he throws them balls with his arm. He's got a gun concealed about his person, and he shoots him up there. I was leading off in Murphy's place, and the game was a little delayed and starting, because I'd watched the big guy warm up and wasn't in no hurry to get to that plate. Before I left the bench, Connie says, Don't try to take no healthy swing. Just meet him and you'll get along better. So I tried to just meet the first one he throwed, but when I stuck out my bat, Henry was throwing the pill back to Johnson. Then I thought, maybe if I start swinging now at the second one, I'll hit the third one. So I let the second one come over, and the umps guessed it was another strike. Though I bet a thousand bucks, he couldn't see it no more than I could. While Johnson was still winding up to pitch again, I started to swing, and the big cuss crosses me with a slow one. I lunged at it twice and missed it both times, and the force of my wallop throwed me clean back to the bench. The athletics was all laughing at me, and I laughed too, because I was glad that much of it was over. McGinnis gets a base hit off him in the second inning, and I asked him how he'd done it. He's a friend of mine, says Jack, and he lets up when he pitches to me. I made up my mind right there that if I was going to be in the league next year, I'd go out and visit Johnson this winter and get acquainted. I wished before the day was over that I was hitting in the catcher's place because the fellers down near the tail end of the batting order only had to face him three times. He fanned me on three pitched balls again in the third, and when I come up in the sixth, he scared me to death by pretty near beaning me with the first one. Be careful, says Henry. He's getting pretty wild and he's liable to knock you away from your uniform. Don't he never curve one, I asked. Sure, says Henry. Do you want to see his curve? Yes, I says, knowing the hook couldn't be no worse than the fast one. So he gave me three hooks in succession and I missed them all but I felt more comfortable than when I was ducking his fastball. In the ninth, he hit my bat with a curve and the ball went on the ground to McBride. He booted it, but throwed me out easy because I was so surprised at not having whiffed that I forgot to run. Well, I went along like that for the rest of the season, running up against the best pitchers in the league and not exactly murdering them. 
Everything I tried went wrong, and I was smart enough to know that if anything had depended on the games, I wouldn't have been in there for two minutes. Joyce and Strunk and Murphy wasn't jealous o' me a bit, but they was glad to take turns resting, and I didn't care how much I went so long as I was sure of a job next year. I'd wrote to the girl a couple of times asking her to set the exact date for our wedding, but she hadn't paid no attention. She said she was glad I was with the athletics, but she thought the Giants was going to beat us. I might have suspected from that that something was wrong, because not even a girl would pick the Giants to trim that bunch of iron. Finally, the day before the series started, I sent her a kind of sassy letter saying, I guessed it was up to me to name the day and asking whether October 20th was all right. I told her to wire me yes or no. I'd been reading the dope about speed all season and I knowed he'd had a whale of a year and that his luck was right with him. But I never dreamed a man could have the Lord on his side as strong as speed did in that world serious. I might as well tell you all the dope so long as you wasn't there. End of chapter 10, Horseshoes, part 1.